you. Good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm filling in for Rob Day. He was supposed to speak today. The good news, you won't hear me speak next week because Brett's on. So that's good. Now last week we, uh, we looked at chapter 14, didn't we? And we saw there that there was opposition to the gospel from all sorts of places, from the Jews, the Gentiles, from uh, false teachers, you know, the sorcerers. We, everywhere that Paul and Barnabas went, they met opposition. And we also realised that it was serious opposition, didn't we? I mean, Paul was stoned almost to death. And I mentioned there last week, near the end there, that the Lord faced opposition as well, didn't he? From all sorts of quarters, all sorts of situations. And I mentioned there at the end, even from his disciples, and it was subtle. In chapter 15, we have that happening. A subtle opposition from believers. We read, didn't we, in chapter 15, some men came from Judea to Antioch. That's where we left uh, Paul and, and Barnabas last week, didn't we? Now, when you read it, it sounds like it was just a couple of days. Well, we we sort of thought last week that it could be anywhere between one or two years since uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas uh, stayed at Antioch with the disciples there. Let's let's just say 18 months. They're undecided, so we'll split the difference. 18 months later, some men came down from Jerusalem. And a dispute arose. So who were these men that started this dispute? Well, they were they were Jewish Christians. Let's not forget that. Jewish Christians. Where from? From Jerusalem. From the church at Jerusalem. Now, in verse 24, we, we also read this morning that while they came from the church at Jerusalem, they didn't come with any real authority from the church, but they, they, were, there, they were there nonetheless. And they were Judaizers. That's a hard word to say, isn't it? Judaizers. Now, that word to Judaize means to conform to the spirit, character, principles or the practices of Judaism. And the other meaning is to bring into conformity with Judaism. And that's what these people were trying to do. These Jewish Christians were trying to bring the believers at Antioch, the Christians in Antioch, into line, as they thought, with the Jewish religious practices, which in this instance here was circumcision. Now, as I said, they weren't associated uh, with... um, Sorry, they weren't authorised by the Jerusalem congregation, but they were associated. So it's almost natural, isn't it, that that the people, the Jewish, the uh, the believers at Antioch thought, oh, they've come from Jerusalem, from the congregation at Jerusalem. It must be important what they're saying. Fortunately. There was a couple of men there, weren't there? Good men. Good men who knew, the God, who knew God's word, knew God's heart, and knew God's will. 
Paul and Barnabas. And they quickly pointed out that these, these uh, uh, Jewish Christians were teaching things that weren't quite right. False teachers, perhaps, incorrectly teaching the word of God, maybe ignorantly teaching the word of God. I don't think that they came with any real malice uh, to, to deceive the congregation. I don't believe that, that the scripture teaches that. I think that perhaps they came without uh, a full knowledge, a full understanding of what God was trying to do. And you know, in chapter 18 of Acts, now someone else will probably speak about this, so I won't say too much, but there's a man called Apollos there. Apollos was a godly man and he wanted people to know about God. And he went about preaching that people needed to be, to, to repent and be baptized, uh, with the, the baptism of John. Now there was another godly couple, Aquila and Priscilla, who, when they came across Apollos, they said, Apollos, love what you're doing but you know something has happened in between and so they explained to Apollos about the Lord how he died for the sins of the world on a cross called Calvary which we remembered about this morning and how forgiveness of sins was now available to all the people who believed in Jesus Christ and gave their lives over to him and Apollos was wrapped because that was a better message, wasn't it? And so we read there that Apollos then took that message and he went out and spread the word. Eh, so he, was, he wasn't false teaching. He wasn't being deceitful. He just didn't have the full revelation. Perhaps that's what was happening here. Let's see. So there was division and distress caused to the church at Antioch, to the believers at Antioch, by this, this message has come up supposedly from Jerusalem. And the reason that there was distress because we had a, a huge conflict between law and grace. They said they had to keep the law as well as receive the grace of God. So there was a conflict And they advocated that salvation also required something else. Now, you and I, we know know that's not true. The Bible makes it very clear that that's not true. And they said that you had to be circumcised as well as believe in Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. And this would would rob the freedom and the liberty that, that believers have in Christ. And Paul and Barnabas wasn't going to let that happen. And what do we read? We read there that says, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. And, you know, it doesn't, doesn't really convey what happened. We don't get the full story, but if you were to turn over to the Galatian epistle, in chapter 2, we get a little bit of insight what happened here. You know, that it was a sharp dispute. And Paul did not take a, a backward step. In his, in his defence, you see the, the, these uh, these Jewish believers were, were coming down and saying that they that that they that you had to be a proselyte. In other words, the model that they used was you had to become a Jew first before you had any relationship with God. That's what they knew. That's how it happened before. You had to become a Jew 
in order to enjoy God's blessings. That, that, was that, that was how it was done before. And they said, have to do it now as well. And you know, over the, 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 the course of, of Christian history, missionaries, great godly men and women of God who went out into the mission field, especially to, to what we would have called the, the pagan world, made the same mistakes. They thought that they had to also westernise some of these people as well as tell them the gospel and get them to believe in Jesus Christ. And they had similar difficulties. So it's not, it's not that they were the only ones that made the same mistake. And so when did all this happen? Well, they reckon it was around about AD 49.50. Is that significant? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because you'll probably sit and think, how could these people have made such a fundamental error in faith? Adding something to the gospel. We know that that's just a big no-no. You don't do that. How could they have made such an error? Well, it's pretty simple, really. The book of Acts, as we've been looking at over the last months, is a foundational book. And I explained to you last week that sometimes it's historical, isn't it? It tells you what happened in the early early days of, of, of Christian history. In AD 49, the book of Romans had not been written. It hadn't even been written in AD 50. Neither had the book of Galatians or the, book, or the epistle to the Hebrews. They had not been written. That is important. They didn't have all those books. Very helpful to you and I. But they didn't have it. And so what we have here is, a, is, a, is an attempt by these misguided, perhaps, Jewish Christians to mix law and grace. Always a problem when you mix things like that. You know, the Lord in Luke 5 said that you, you shouldn't put new wine into old skins. Why is that? It's just not done. The new wine would ferment and, and burst the old skins. He also mentioned it would be like uh, renting, uh, stitching up the rent veil. When God had done something, like rent the veil in the temple, I'm sure those priests went looking for needle and thread to repair the damage, to put it back like it was before. Not God's intention at all. And so the believers at Antioch sent a delegation to Jerusalem to the apostles and it included Paul and Barnabas which we've been looking at over the last few weeks and again like I said if you want to get a a real picture of what, what transpired have a look at Galatians 2 so in verse 2, we see uh, an interesting thing here. It says that, that the, the believers sent these people to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and the elders about this question. I'd like to point out, I'm a real stickler for things like this, I'd like to point out nowhere in the Bible does it say that this was a, a council or a conference, not even a synod. It wasn't, it wasn't as official as that. But the Jerusalem church was the oldest church around. It was the first church, wasn't it? We looked at that many months ago. 
That's where the Lord said that the gospel had to be preached first at Jerusalem. And so people believed and the church was formed. Up to 3,000 on one day. Eh? That's great. They had experienced teachers there, didn't they? Who'd they have? Peter. We read that the Lord's brother, James, was there. And in Galatians 2, it also tells you that John, the apostle John, you know, he's my favourite apostle, he really is. Can you imagine a church with John, Peter and James? That would be a church worth going to, yes? Amen. They also, the Jerusalem church also sent Barnabas to Antioch. Remember we read that in Acts 11, chapter 22. And so there was this relationship, wasn't there, between the church at Antioch and the church at Jerusalem. And in fact, it was, it's really interesting that the church of Antioch, when they heard that there was a bit of a famine in Jerusalem, what did they do? They had an offering, a special offering, and sent that money up to um, Jerusalem as famine relief. So they had, they had, they had a connection, didn't they? And I think that's why they were so distressed when, when, when men from Jerusalem, when Christians from Jerusalem church came down and started saying these things that just didn't sound right to them. So what do we, what do we see? And then we see a defence given here, don't we? We see, we see, um, uh, Peter standing up, uh, Paul and Barnabas have something to say. And then we have James saying something as well. So in that section that was read this morning, we have, we have four people speaking and giving some very weighty evidence. I, I, I love this, what, what Peter said. Uh, he said a lot of things here, but he, he did say, uh, I should have written it down. It does say there somewhere that God made a choice. I love the way he said that, you know. He, made, he laid it right out that he said, God made a choice to choose the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Now, verse 7 it is, that's right. There it is, verse 7. God made a choice. God accepted the Gentiles by giving them a different, no, not a different spirit. The same Holy Spirit that the Jews received in Jerusalem. Remember, we, we, we learnt about that. Acts chapter 2. And then he, he reminded them that Paul, that God does not show favouritism. God was not racist. We looked at that as well. And we enjoyed, we enjoyed knowing that God, God doesn't worry about your colour, your skin, the race, the country you come from, the language you speak, how much money. It makes no difference to him. And Peter reminds him, God's interested in what's, your, what's in your heart. And then at the end of his, his defence or the things that he had to say, he, he issues a challenge to the people, doesn't he? Near the end there he says, so why are you testing God? Why are you doubting God? He made a choice. He gave them the spirit. He, we know that God doesn't show favouritism. You know, Peter had to learn all this, didn't he? The hard way himself. 
And he probably thought that everyone else had, had understood what was going on, but obviously not. And then we have, then we have from verse um, 12, we have Paul and Barnabas recounting again what had, what had happened, recounted the events that we looked at in great detail last week. But the interesting thing that's recorded here for us is that in the recounting, Paul tells them, Paul and Barnabas tell them that miraculous and miraculous signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles. Why is that significant? Why? You know why. I know why. Because the Bible tells us the Jews always wanted a sign. They hounded the Lord for a sign. Well, we'll believe you if you do this, you know. Show us a sign. And it's interesting how the Lord always performed a miracle when, when he had to prove or, or, or establish that he was the son of God or he had to, he had to give them some really uh, different sort of doctrinal teaching. He always backed that up by performing some sort of miracle. That's why you see the apostles uh, and the, some of the disciples performing so many miracles in the book of Acts. God was bringing something really new and radical and he had to back it up as like a stamp of approval. And so that's why it's mentioned there. That's why they said, you know, we went to the Gentiles and we read about that last week. We went to the Gentiles and, you know, we did all these things and God did those things through us. That would have impressed the Jewish believers at Jerusalem. They would have thought, oh, miracles, signs, and wow, you know. That's a God thing. And then James. Remember James? Remember I told you about James last week? He didn't think much of his brother when, when they were, you know, sharing a bedroom. Can you imagine that, sharing a bedroom with the Lord? Anyway. But after, after the Lord was risen from there, it changed James. And here, this is, this is the Lord's brother, James. He stands up and he says, the testimony that we've heard, especially from Simon, which is Peter, and, and what's in the, in, the, in the Old Testament scriptures testifies that it's true. God has accepted the Gentiles who believe. He also makes a, he also makes a, a judgment, doesn't he? He tells them that, that grace is sufficient for salvation. Grace alone. No circumcision, obeying the Lord of Moses, nothing else. Just faith in Jesus Christ. That's still my message today, isn't it? Amen. But it doesn't end there, does it? Because that's only, that's only verse, uh, up to verse 22. There are some restrictions and conditions imposed. There's a famous Australian who has this saying. Please explain. You know who she is, don't you? You've got red hair. Please explain. Because it does seem like a contradiction here, doesn't it? Have we misunderstood it? Was James having a, you know, pardon the, the, the example, a bob each way? Is he, you know? What's going on? Because this is a controversial passage. 
And some doctrines and some things that the Christian church does is based on this event that's happened here in, in, uh, in Acts. But we don't see it as we should. You see, there was a twofold aspect that was uh, discussed here. One was doctrinal. The other one was a practical issue, a practical issue. Doctrinally, salvation. All sinners before God. There is no distinction, is there? All have sinned, Jew and Gentile alike. So there was one need, salvation. There was only one gospel that offered to meet that need through Jesus Christ. God only has one program to call out a people for his own, for his own name. That was clear. James says, that's it. Nothing else to, to, to talk about that. But, there's always a but, isn't there? There's always a but. But there are some practical things that have been happening as well. The church had a problem, didn't it, of blending these two entities, the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, into one church. Because that's what the scripture tells us, doesn't it? We are one church. Blending, the, blending these two, two different uh, people groups. You know, how we do church causes more issues and more problems than what we actually believe. Hmm? It's true, isn't it? When you think about it, when you stop and think and you look at history and you look at you know, us here today, the way we do church is more of a problem to us than what we believe. I feel sorry for the Jews, these Jewish people in particular. You know, the Jews had a God-given system of faith. God gave them what they were trying to impose on these people. God, let's not make any... He, he gave them that system. And you can understand how that was precious to them. But not only precious, they guarded that. They practiced it for thousands of years. Not a generation or two or three, not even hundreds of years, but thousands. Right from the book of Exodus when they first became a, a nation. So right back at the start of the Bible nearly. It had become a way of life for the nation. That's not so good, but that's a fact. The whole nation. And they had the Old Testament writings. You know, they actually had the word of God in stone, Graham, in stone. Finger of God wrote those Ten Commandments in stone. Now all that had to change. And just like me, they couldn't handle the change. They didn't like change. I don't like change either. But sometimes you have to change. They couldn't handle it. And you know, that's why the book of Hebrews was written. Hebrews was written to Jewish believers because they were struggling. God had given them this system and now they had to change to this other system that 
someone was saying that God's son said we should do it. You can see how they struggled. It's understandable, isn't it? Yeah, I would, I would struggle. And you know what? The Jewish nation is still struggling with that as well. They haven't accepted Jesus Christ. As a nation, they have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. As the Saviour, the promised Saviour, they haven't accepted him. So what were those conditions that James had, had, had put in place? What are they about? Well, they relate to fellowship. In particular, this is what the theologians tell us, table fellowship. What's that? That's sort of like fellowship lunches and teas that you have, something similar to that. Now, Gentile believers were young in a faith. Truly, they were babes in Christ. They knew nothing. Only what the apostles had told them. They hadn't been saved very long. 18 months, maybe? Maybe two years? Maybe. How much have you learned about the Lord in two years? And you know, let's not forget those Gentiles. They would have had traditions and cultural things and you know, a bit of religious stuff that you know they were doing. I know about that. You see, I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm Italian by birth. Everybody in Italy is Roman Catholic. Whether you go to church or not, you're born in Italy, you're a Catholic. Everybody. And it becomes cultural. You know, it's very trendy now to have delis. But, you know, when I was a little boy, there was one deli, one Italian deli in Kobe. That's all. You know, if you had to eat all those strange things which now are really trendy and expensive, we were eating them back in the 60s. I remember my mum loving the fact that she could go to that deli, not just buy the stuff that you know we knew it was good and eat, but she loved getting the calendar from Italy. That's like they got the calendars from Italy. And you know what? On the calendars in Italy, if you get a calendar from Italy, in all those little squares, which yours are probably empty like mine are, there's all this writing, all this writing. All the saints, every single day is a saint day, every one of them. And some of them have more than one saint in the box. It's hard work. And mum loved it because, you know, some saint days are more important than others and you had to keep them. And we used to have this little, this little, uh, I was hoping Sam was here that he would, he would, you know, confirm this, but we used to have these little, little glass bowls that had oil and water. And Tiffa remembers this, don't you remember? In Nona's house? And, and they would have this little wick and you'd light it on special saint days. We used to be called a lumin. That's an Italian word, all right? And you'd light that on it. You'd look at the calendar and say, oh, that's yeah, that's it. Light up the candle. We weren't devout Catholics. We weren't. Our family wasn't. I mean, we did the minimal amount. But it was cultural. You still did those things whether, whether you, know, you were devout or not. That's what was happening here. That's exactly what was happening here. The idolatry and, and the immorality that, that's talked about, the, the, the dietary things that were talked about here, that's what it was. It was a cultural thing. And the Jews were struggling with it. The Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, when they got together to have fellowship lunch and tea and 
things like that, they were struggling with what was on the table. And you know, the Jewish faith, they honoured marriage probably more than any other other cultural or religious faith at the time. You know, polygamy was not allowed according to the, to the, to the laws of God, the Jewish nation. It did happen, but it wasn't allowed. And, you know, they hounded the Lord about this divorce thing. You know, when the Lord came, they were keen. How do we get, how do we get out of this marriage thing, you know? And the Lord said, you know, Moses might have given you the, the, uh, the, the right to, do, to divorce. He says, but it wasn't like that from the big. It's not God's desire. And it's interesting, isn't it? that the analogy of the New New Testament church is Jesus Christ, the bridegroom, and you and me, the bride. But it wasn't like that in the Gentile world. Now, you know, they didn't bother marrying half the time, and if you were married, well, you know, two wrinkles, grey hair, away you go, get myself a new wife. Yeah, you know, they struggled with that. The meat that was being offered... Uh, that was being eaten, it was being offered to, to, to idols. It was a cultural thing. What was it like? I don't know if you've noticed this, and this is not a racist thing, but it's always a but, isn't it? No, but, but it's a fact, right? You go up to Weir Street and you go to the bakeries or any other shops and they'll have a little shrine in a shop somewhere. The little offerings in front of it or there's this little I don't know I've, I've looked at it a few a lot of times that there's this little idol thing that goes like this I think it's a cat I'm not sure but I, I know what it's for now it, we're not we're not poking fun at them it's a, that's what they do and they, they do they offer their, their things to, to to their God that that would bless that it would be prosperous it's their culture it's what they but they believe in let me tell you that every butcher shop in Jerusalem was kosher, every single one of them. Because it was, that's their, their culture. In, in Jerusalem, every butcher shop, the local supermarket, they all sold kosher meat. That's what they expected, that's what they wanted. Do you think there were many kosher butcher shops in Antioch? Not a one. Can you see the problem here? Fellowship tea, you know, food full, of, a table full of food, and uh, well, you know, you know what happens. But it's more serious than that. I'm making it a little bit light there, but more serious than that. You know, in the Book of Acts, they didn't have buildings like this. Most of the time, the churches met in homes, big homes, if it were, they were available, but they met, met in homes of believers. They were house churches. Food and fellowship was very important. We, we, we understand that from, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where you had, used to have a love feast. They would, have, they would have a big lunch before they would have the, the, the communion time. But they would eat together and have fellowship together. That caused problems. We know that. It's, been, it's, it's documented. And hospitality was very, very important in those, in those uh, times, in those days. And what we have here, what we have here is a situation that brought about Romans 14 and 15. Yep. 
It wasn't written then, but when Paul wrote Romans chapter 14 and 15, this is what he had in mind. And my time's running out, so I'll read you verse 1. It says in verse 1 of Romans 14, Accept him whose faith is weak, without passing judgment on disputable things. It doesn't say doctrinal, does it? He says, don't pass judgment on disputable things that aren't all that important. And you know who the weak people are that's, that Paul is referring to here? Not the Gentiles, but the Jews. The Jewish believers were the ones that were weak in faith. Because those things, those things that, that, that were, they were so upset about weren't that important. They were disputable things, not doctrinal things. I'd love to read you... Uh, Romans 14, 13, 21, but we haven't got time. But let me just say that six years after this event in Acts, Romans was written and Paul had a lot to say about eating and drinking and how it relates to faith. Please, if you get time this afternoon, have a read, Romans 14 and 15. And so we, what we have here is we have... We have these these conditions were met so there would be harmony and unity between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers so they would get on so they wouldn't have a split you know I can just imagine a big split between we're Christians that believe in the law oh yeah but we're Christians that believe in grace that's where we are today aren't we Protestant faith. And then there was a desire here, wasn't it, that they would be united, that they would have a united witness and testimony to all the Jews who hadn't come to faith yet, and which were in all the cities. And, and the blessings that we have today, with our freedom that we have today, comes from what was resolved here at Jerusalem. I mentioned last week that sometimes it's really hard to get an application out of the book of uh, out of the book of Acts. Sometimes you're given a chapter or a passage that's it's historical, very interesting. But how does it relate to you and me today? This is a little bit like that. But I found something. I found something I'd like to share with you. Our application for you and me today: all churches, all churches have problems. Absolutely every single one. There isn't a church that hasn't got problems. And if it hasn't got problems today, next week. Probably next week or the week after that. Because you and I, we cause problems. People. But this this passage tells us that even serious problems can be solved. Can be worked out. It's amazing that if you sit and you listen and you're calm, that's the key part, calm, and see what God is doing. That's what James did. And James was listening to all that was happening and he listened and he was calm about it and he thought, hmm. When you see what God is actually trying to do, you have to accept it. You have to. You may not like it, but you have to accept it. That's what happened here. You know, there were probably still Jewish Christians at the Church of Jerusalem who thought, no, I'm really not happy about this, but you know what? I can see that God's doing something here. I'm not sure about it, but you know, 
I'll accept it because God's doing it. We, you and I have to do the same thing in our lives, in our church, in our country. Most church problems are not caused by doctrinal issues. You know why? Because they're the easiest ones to solve. You know, you just look up the, the thing and yeah, God says it, we do it. It's the different points of view on practical issues. You know, practical things like, you know, what hymn book we use, which version of the Bible we read, you know, things like that. You know, what bread we use, whether we use real wine or grape juice. There are churches that have problems over that who wouldn't come and fellowship with us because we have grape juice and we have all these bits of bread instead of one life. Seems stupid, doesn't it? Because it is. Not all compromise is bad. Sometimes people think that compromising us is a sign of weakness. You've got you to you give too much. Because this is not talking about doctrinal. Practical things. Disputable things. Things that are sort of important but not vital to our faith. So not all compromise is bad. Doctrinal compromise, not on. James made it very clear. John talks about it in the book of Jude. The whole little epistle of Jude's all written about the fact that you cannot compromise doctrine. And then finally, that unity, you know, the way we get on doesn't mean uniformity. God never says to you, you have to be like Raph. Thank goodness for that. eh? He doesn't say to me, I have to be like like Laurie or, or Morris. So unity means getting on with each other, being united in, in the things that matter, the really important things. And unity is based on love. And I'm going to leave you with this verse. I left you with one last week. I'm going to leave you with another one. In John chapter 17, verses 20 to 21, the Lord prays. We don't get many options, we don't have opportunities to see what the Lord prays about. But here's one, so it's important. And the Lord Praise, and he wants his church to be united. I'm going to leave you with this verse. This is what the Lord says. My prayer is not for them, that's the apostles alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. That all may be one, Father, just as you and I as you, you are in me and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So it's important, isn't it? It's important to our faith. It's important to our witness and our testimony to the world that we are united. And the Lord prayed for that. Interesting. Thank you. Thank you.